Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become great leaders and build happy teams. I'm your host, Marcus Blankenship. Today's episode, one more time, what is leadership? On the last episode, we talked about the difference between managing and leading. And I told you that managing is a lot about controlling and assigning and allocating and assembling things. You manage your money, you manage your time, you manage your schedule, your servers, your code, you get the idea. Management is important because we have limited resources in our lives. If I had unlimited money, I wouldn't need to manage my money. But of course, I don't. One thing that programmers used to have to manage was memory, for example. But now that seems like it's effectively unlimited, uh, so we don't have to think about it anymore. But I digress. This episode, we're going back to dive into this sticky question. What is leadership? But before we dive in, I want to say thank you to GitPrime, the sponsor for this episode. GetPrime.com is a tool you can use, and it's amazing. I've used it, and I am a big fan, where it shows you amazing insights about how your developers work, how they act, all from the source code repository, all from analyzing your Git repo. Now, here's the reason I like GitPrime so much. GitPrime is the kind of tool that on the surface seems a little scary, and I was really skeptical. But truthfully, GitPrime is the kind of tool that allows you to have better conversations with the people you lead. It's not about stack ranking them. It's not about looking at absolute productivity. It's another tool for your early warning system. When are things going well? When are things not going well? And where do you, as the programming manager, need to understand the behavior behind the data? They call it data-driven engineering management. I love that. I call it having better conversations. Check it out. Sign up for a free trial at getprime.com. And again, thanks to them for being a sponsor. If you like this podcast and you talk to them, would you say thanks for sponsoring the Programming Leadership Podcast? Now, my favorite definition of leadership comes from Jerry Weinberg's book, Becoming a Technical Leader. And that says that leadership is the process of creating an environment which allows everyone to work on solving the most important problem at hand. I want to break this down because I really like this definition for a lot of reasons. First, this definition frames leadership as a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a continual striving to create and improve this kind of environment. It's not about perfection. It's about incremental improvement over time. And I think that also means there's no absolutely right way or wrong way to do it. And there's also no ultimate goal. You can't ever say we've arrived at creating the perfect environment that allows people to problem solve together. No, there is always room for improvement. And we don't have to be ashamed that we're not the best in the world. All we have to do is recognize that this is something we can improve as a process over time. Second, I really like the outcome. The outcome is not controlling people. It's not even, frankly, shipping great software. It 
is this other word called affordance, okay? If you're familiar with Don Norman's fantastic book, The Design of Everyday Things, he talks about affordances are the things in everyday things that allow us to grip and manipulate and control the things around us. So a car radio has affordances of like knobs, okay? Now, this is not about controlling people. This is about creating an environment which affords, and that's the word I like better than allows, affords everyone the ability to work on solving the most important problem at hand, okay? So the other thing, of course, this assumes is that everyone wants to work on the most important problem. I believe this is 100% true. It's also backed up by science. Hertzberg's two-factor theory of motivation and Hackman's job control theory, both that came out in the 60s and 70s, identified that some of the biggest motivators for people was the work itself. We want to do good work. We want to work on hard problems. We want to do work that matters. And to me, it's such a beautiful way to put it to say that we're going to create an environment which affords everyone the ability to work on solving the most important problem at hand. I think that's a beautiful statement. And I think that everyone, everyone on your team and you want to work on the most important problems at hand. Okay, now third, it doesn't say that it allows people to work on any problem they want. Now, it's very important. It says that this special environment called leadership, that leadership creates this special environment, which allows everyone to work on the most important problems at hand. Have you ever been assigned to work on a problem that didn't seem to matter? I have. Maybe only certain people with certain titles got to work on the important problems. Frankly, it stinks right? You're over there in the corner working on something, but it feels like in comparison, your work doesn't really matter. And I want to work on problems that matter. This definition of leadership doesn't say create an environment where everyone's busy or create an environment where everyone's productive. Or maybe another word we like to use is create an environment where everyone's uh, contributing. But no, this is an environment. Leadership is an environment where everyone's working on the most important problem. I love that. And I think that's what your team wants. In fact, truth be told, I talk to a lot of people who leave their jobs. And unfortunately, one of the, one of the reasons programmers and managers leave their jobs is that they say, I just couldn't really contribute to, to things that mattered. I was somehow hamstrung, and I find that really sad. Now, the last element to point out is that I, sometimes there are big, hairy, important problems that executives want us to solve, okay? I get that. It, those are very fun, challenging problems sometimes, but there's almost always a set of problems right here within arm's reach, and I think that's what Jerry meant by at hand, these are the problems at hand which we could be working on, which many times we should be working on. Sometimes these are the problems that everyone on the team seems would agree need to be solved, but maybe never get solved. Maybe we never get around to dealing with it. Does this sound familiar? Are there problems on your team today 
that if you sat your team down and you said, hey, what is the most important thing that we work on? What would impact our ability to serve, our ability to code, our ability to produce quality, our ability to be motivated? What would matter most? I bet the things that your team sees are different than the executive sees. And I think that those maybe could be thought of as the problems at hand. Okay, let's also just for a minute hit on this idea of what the definition doesn't say. I think that's just as telling as what it does say. It doesn't say who's a leader. It only says what they do. They create this environment. Of course, lots of people without the title manager are doing this today, right where you work. My guess is that there are people on your team today who work hard to create an environment that makes everyone more productive and effective. They don't have a special title, but they care. They care that everyone can contribute. They believe that it's better when everyone contributes, that the job get done smoother. They aren't worried about getting the credit or being in control or getting the next promotion or power or prestige. These are leaders who are on your team today, and they're like leaders from within the team. Actually, it's funny. One of my clients recently told me, my boss went on vacation this week and man, everything got easier. How sad is that? Managers, bosses, executives, and these capital L leaders often inhibit rather than contribute to this environment. When they leave, people say, wow, things are so much easier and better now. That's all too common, and unfortunately, it's pretty sad. Now, I really like this definition of leadership. Again, it's Jerry's. It comes right out of his book, Becoming a Better Technical Leader. But I'd be remiss if I told you it was the only one that I liked and that I believed in. And I think there's another one that is dovetails in so nicely, and it's backed by more science. Jerry's is, Jerry's theory is backed by a lot of hands-on work leading teams. So I'm gonna let me give you this other one, okay? There's as many leadership theories out in this world as there are programming languages. So there's a huge wide variety to choose from. That is really saying something, right? Because there's a lot of languages. And I don't know, I was thinking about it last night, and these leadership theories actually share something in common with programming languages. I might be stretching this a little bit, but I think they're both attempts to understand something that's really complex and nebulous. And, and really try and give practitioners better tools to work with. So let me get a little nerdy here on you. You're probably a nerd if you're listening to a, a podcast named Programming Leadership. Leadership theories can all be broken into just two camps, entity theories and dyadic theories. And you can tell people this and sound really smart. Entity theories are also known as great man theories. Not to be sexist, but that's what they're called. And these have been around for thousands of years. And frankly, they remain very popular today. Now, these theories focus on the traits and qualities and behaviors and priorities of the leader. They put a microscope on the leader. The leader is the entity to be studied. The leader possesses the leadership. Traditionally, the leader was studied, um, maybe like you might think about generals, kings, executives, uh, founders, visionaries, right? We get Napoleon, maybe the guy that was in Braveheart, William Wallace, Abraham Lincoln, John Kennedy. These are all examples, uh, as are Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, of people who have been studied 
under great man theory, scientific studies. They look at them and they say, what made Steve Jobs so great? What made him such a great leader? And then they really try and dissect all that. Now, of course, the reason they're trying to dissect it is the thing that goes with it is the idea that if we knew what made Steve Jobs such a great leader, then we could maybe model some of those traits or maybe we'd learn that there was no point because Steve Jobs maybe was born with a spark of genius, that he was just born that way. And, and so what we should do is, as uh, if we're trying to hire for leaders, is we should just look for born leaders or natural leaders. Now, entity theories are where we get these ideas about born leaders and natural leaders. And my guess is maybe you even heard some phrase like this when you were in elementary school. Maybe some teacher said, oh, you're a natural leader. This idea that some people are, quote, born to lead or that they're born possessing these special sparks of leadership genius. This is entity theory leadership. Great man leadership. You can probably see why it's called great man leadership now, right? It's the idea that we look up to these leaders, admire them, and if we ever find ourselves in a leadership uh, or management role, let's try and become like them. Let's model them. Unfortunately, this traditional idea of leadership leaves most of us out in the cold, including me. I always felt like I was looking in at the cool kids. I was never accused any time in my life of being a natural leader, of being a born leader. Nope, that's not me. I, I, if you Google me, you're going to see pictures of me, Marcus Blankenship, and you will see what a giant dork I am. So I am sitting here talking to you as a leader who has to say that, that this idea of entity theories and great man leadership, I don't believe in it. I don't believe in it at all. So let me tell you what I do believe in. So entity theories focus on these ideas of great men. It's just not very useful. About 40 years ago, though, some psychologists were thinking the same thing. They thought, okay, maybe this leadership thing has been studied wrong. Maybe we've been looking in the wrong place. Maybe leadership might not be all about one person, the leader. But what if it's about two people? the leader, and the follower. And what if it's about the relationship that they have together? Now, in sociology terms, two people is a dyad, D-Y-A-D. So this is why it's called a dyadic theory. It's about two people, not just one. And here's a little bit of trivia. You can use this the next time you want to impress somebody. This was originally known as vertical dyadic linkage theory. And feel free to use that to impress people that you know. Uh, but other than that, forget it. Never use it again. All right. So these psychologists wondered, like, does a person's relationship with their boss have any influence on their performance or their job satisfaction? So these psychologists wondered, does a person's relationship with their boss have any influence on their performance or satisfaction? To put it in psychology terms, they wondered if there was a statistically significant correlation between the quality of relationship someone has with their boss and that person's performance and satisfaction at work. Can you guess what they found? Well, hold it. Before I tell you what they found, let me ask you this. Let's do this quick thought experiment. Think back. Think back to the best boss you've ever had. Okay? Did you do great work there? Were you a good performer? Were you happy at your job? 
Now, let's flip the question around. I want you to think about the worst boss you've ever had. And one comes to mind for me immediately, a guy named Paul. Did you do great work there? Were you a good performer? Were you happy at your job? If you're like most people, you did much better work for your best boss than for your worst boss. And you were happy and more satisfied. I know I was. And we could go into boss horror stories, but we won't do that today. I just want that thought experiment. Every time I run it in my workshops, people nod. Sometimes people even jump up and they're like, holy crap, I've been a high performer at every single place I ever worked except this one job. And my boss hated me and I hated him. And now I start to get it. Okay, so these psychologists found exactly the same thing. The quality of relationship that people have with their boss is a predictor of how good their performance is and how satisfied they are. It's a small step from there to imagine that things like turnover, motivation, enthusiasm, attitude, these are all impacted. We shouldn't be surprised then to hear that Gallup's 2016 State of the American Manager poll said that, then this is really sad, 50% of people have left a job to escape a manager, 50%. Thus, the saying was born, people join companies, but they leave managers. Now, yeah, all this research started 40 years ago, and like any good scientific finding, it needed to be repeated to validate it. And repeated it has been through thousands and thousands of studies across the globe, all types of workers, all environments, even software developers, which I think is really cool. The theory has, of course, continued to evolve. That long name, which I won't repeat, was quickly shortened to something that was a little more easier to handle. Broadly now, it's called Leader Member Exchange Theory, or LMX Theory. So, if you, wanna, if you want to research this more, Google for LMX Theory, and you're going to see lots of articles that talk about um, how the relationship you have with your boss matters and why, and some specific suggestions you can, you can, as a leader, take from that idea. Now, okay, so the bigger point here is a whole new set of leadership theories are starting to evolve. And to be honest, it's only in the last five years that they now live under a broader name. And that's the name I'm going to use more often. And that name is called relational leadership. LMX theory is a part of relational leadership, but there are many other parts. Servant leadership isn't quite in relational leadership. We can talk about that on another episode. This uh, area of study, and it truly is scientific study, really says that relational leadership is the way people want to be led and the most effective way for leading smart people in our modern age with the modern kind of knowledge workers that we have working for us. Okay, so I just want to leave you with a final couple thoughts here. So the first theory I told you about, Jerry's theory and relational leadership, dovetail quite nicely. Both are about leadership, not management. The first one talks about creating an environment. And I would assert that the most important aspect to that environment is the quality of relationships we have with those people we work for and we work with. Neither 
neither uh, leadership theory um, tells us that leaders are born or a very special kind of person in terms of their traits and qualities like extroversion, public speaking, ability to, you know, get out of their shell, whatever. It's not about possessing natural born abilities. It's about learning something. And this is how I want to end today. This is my last point. I want you to think about this as our gospel, okay? Gospel in Greek means good news. I think this is our good news, that leaders aren't born, they're made. And that is such very good news indeed, because it means we can all learn to be leaders. I bet you're actually closer than you think to being a great leader. You already know how to be a friend, a partner, a lover, a sibling, a peer, a colleague. You already know how to build strong, trust, caring relationships with other people. You're wired for that. You've got those building blocks to be a great leader. In short, you've got this. And we're going to continue working on this in future episodes of the podcast. But I just wanted to lay this foundation. That, to me, is leadership. And that means that we, together, can learn how to do this better. So I promised we'd take a few questions today. And there were a couple of questions from the last show. So let's dive into these. The first one comes from Tim, who writes in, Marcus, I'm a relatively new team lead, and I am absolutely overwhelmed should I be programming? Should I be managing? Whatever the heck that means. Uh, how come every day goes by so fast? And frankly, what the heck is the most important priority? Well, hey, Tim, thanks for writing in. Remember, folks, if you're listening, you can certainly send your questions to Marcus at MarcusBlankenship.com. All right, Tim, what you've got here is a situation where, unfortunately, you're overwhelmed and you don't know which way to turn. So let me just give you a couple of basics to orient you. First of all, if you're the new team lead or tech lead, whatever you want to call it, you've got to reduce your coding time and you've got to increase your people time. This is vital. And what that means is you've got to start delegating more. All right. I recognize that maybe you're the best coder on the team, that there are things that the other team, team members can't do. I get it, okay? The problem is, is that now every task you take on that puts you in the critical path becomes a big problem because if I'm guessing correctly, you're no longer as much in control of your schedule. That means you get to meet with bosses, with clients, with users, with your team. You have got a very, very full calendar. Okay, so the first thing you need to start doing is you need to start delegating as much production work as you can. Now, I didn't say coding. I said production work because I do think you should still be coding. This is actually a variation on a past stance I had. The reason I think you should still be coding is because you are a technical expert and your team needs your technical expertise. But the real reality is, is every project you take on that puts you in the critical path means it's one more thing that you have to do that does not give you any flexibility to handle problems that come from your team or your boss. And frankly, it robs your team of understanding that bit of code that you write. Okay, every bit of code you write is now a piece of code that your team didn't write 
and probably doesn't understand well enough to maintain. I want you to think about that. You are literally robbing your team from learning opportunities. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a piece of paper and I want you to make notes for a few days about exactly how you spend your time. This is especially important if it seems a little nebulous where your time's really going, okay? So I want you to do this and I want you to track kind of what percentage of your time is spent on coding, what's in meetings, what's with your team, what's with your boss, what's with your clients. And then I want you to reallocate that for a few days. I want you to try taking on no coding tasks. It, not forever, but as an experiment, I want you to take on no programming tasks for say three days. And instead, I want you to sit down with your team members and delegate those. Now you might say, Marcus, I don't delegate because we use Agile and people just pull tasks off the board. Okay, great. Well, that might mean you need to reassign some of your tasks, that you stories that you currently have open out to team members. And it might need, mean that you need to sit down with team members who aren't quite ready to take on the stuff you would have taken and have a pair programming session to make sure that they're capable and ready and oriented for the work. So for three days, you are going to avoid doing production coding work. You are still going to look at PRs. You're still going to do code reviews. You're still going to do architectural walkthroughs and demos. But I want to get you used to being out of the software production cycle because it's your job to manage the process and the people. It's And in fact, to lead the people, not simply to contribute code. Now, if this is not your problem, if you are not spending enough time in the code and your people are taking all your time, I want you to kind of flip this on its head. I still think you should do one-on-ones. And by the way, if you're not doing one-on-ones, and you are going to hear me repeat this over and over again. This is the only way to real sanity, in my opinion, is to schedule one-on-ones that are effective for dealing with problems before they happen and that make sure that your employees, your team, knows that there's a safe place they can come talk to you at a given time. And I bet 90% of the things that they come to you in an ad hoc way, they're actually just going to save those up for the one-on-ones. We're going to try and get rid of this open door fallacy and we're going to use one-on-ones. So if you're getting bombarded constantly by your team and you think, oh, this is my life, it doesn't have to be. Set up one-on-ones and then go into your calendar. And here's the trick. You have to respect your calendar or no one else will. I want you to go into your calendar and schedule thinking time, coding time, if that's where you need to balance, maybe planning time, Heck, time just to learn something. I want you to schedule every day a 60 to 120 minute block where you don't have anything else going on. You are at your computer and you say, this is my time to do the important thing that is always getting interrupted. Time management is one of the most difficult things in the transition from programmer to manager. There are some great resources out there. We'll put in the show notes a webinar I did um, about time management for technical leaders. It was brutal for me. Now, you might be also thinking, well, Marcus, I can put the time on my calendar, but no one's going to respect it. Other people are still going to book meetings over it or they're going to walk in. Well, this is where you've got to respect it more. 
first. You've got to set that example. That means if people are just randomly putting meetings on your calendar, you need to learn to say no or not now. You need to tell people in advance, this time that you see is blocked out, that is sacred time. I am not going to move it because otherwise I can't do my fundamental job. And my fundamental job is thinking, not coding. And thinking takes time and focus and quiet and a place to relax and frankly, just orient yourself. I also found tips and tricks. I hate to say this, but I'm going to. I found tips and tricks like coming in early on a Saturday sometimes help, being there when no one else was at the office. These aren't great habits, but when you're trying to survive in a constant barrage of people who need your attention, you've got to find some time when it's just you so you can think. Okay, all right, I hope this was helpful. Good luck and congratulations on your new, uh, on your new role. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.